the first time I came in contact with the police, I was probably like 14. And I don't remember exactly either drugs or violence, probably. And I was placed on probation. And like, ironically, I just got released off federal probation maybe two weeks ago. So from 14 to 50, I've been part of the system. Excited to have Sean Thompson now in the studio today. Um, I'm excited personally because he's from my hometown of St. Louis. Um, he's recently just moved to D.C. from Chicago, and he has an amazing story about how he has been able to defeat the odds and obtain a stellar education despite spending almost 30 years in prison. Hey, what's up, Sean? Hey, how you doing, Mark? How you doing, man? So glad to have you in the studio today. All right, then. Thank you. Sean, let's just, um, you know, let's just take it back. We, you know, we had our personal conversation because you're from St. Louis, right? Right, what right. What part of St. Louis you grew up in? North St. Louis. <laughs> yeah, so I'm from Jennings, and I think many of our listeners know that. Uh, but it's good to have somebody else in D.C. who's from St. Louis. I could definitely relate to your story because as you were telling me, the area that you grew up in, I can just see it in my mind. Like, I know exactly what those streets look like. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, let's just start there. Start with your story. What was it growing up? What was it like growing up um, in North St. Louis? Uh, like any other inner-city youth anywhere in the country, uh, a lot of crime, a lot of violence, poverty, and, you know, young teens just involve themselves in what's going on around them. And I got, at an early age, I got caught up in situations, and I think at 17 I went to prison and ended up doing, like, 13 years, seven months. So I went in when I was, like, 17, 18. I got out when I was 30. So, but your bio, you said that you were uh, a part of the criminal justice system since you were 14. So what happened there? Uh, the first time I came in contact with the police, I was probably, like, 14. And I don't remember exactly either drugs or violence, probably. And I was placed on probation. And, like, ironically... I just got released off federal probation maybe two weeks ago. So from 14 to 50, I've been part of the system. Wow, wow. Well, so you have spent 27 years in prison. Yeah, state and federal prison. State and federal prison. So talk about those experiences. While you were in prison, do you think that the current state of our criminal justice system is conducive to rehabilitation? Of course not. Uh, the system is about, it's a penal system. They penalize you for anything, for laws they've created that's discriminatory, 
there's no rehabilitative programs. This is just basically warehousing. It's all about count, you know, body count. You know, and, you know, jailers need prisoners like slaves need slaves. You know, it's job security. Well, the interesting thing about your story is that once you were released, you went to the University of Chicago. You also went to Roosevelt University. And now you're thinking of or in the works to pursue a Ph.D. Yeah. Um, do you think that those, that same, those same opportunities should have been afforded to you in prison? Um, and if so, how? How do we use the time that people are incarcerated um, to provide opportunities for people? Or is it even possible, you know, or should we even have a prison or a jail system? Uh, we need a jail system, man. But there ought to be some resources and rehabilitative programs, anything other than monopoly and basketball. Uh, they're not investing in into the people there because eventually they'll be released with no marketable skills or anything. They'll return right back to their neighborhoods. And it, and you know the story, man. They'll end up back in, in recidivism. Race is going to go up high. And it's wicked, man. But the system is working exactly how it's supposed to work. We'll talk a little bit of, a little bit about your own personal experience because you were released. Talk about when you were released and what it was like for you to try to reintegrate and what were some of the decisions that you had to make to ensure a you know um, decent life for yourself. Okay, uh, I had to bring all of my experiences in the pool. Uh, the first time I was released from prison. I still had a criminal mindset, so I did criminal things. Uh, but after this time when I was released, I just realized I couldn't return to St. Louis. I realized I had to reinvent myself, that I was more than just a number and a statistic. Well, talk a little bit about that, because you mentioned in our previous conversation how law enforcement viewed you as someone with a felony conviction, and this is why you had to move away from St. Louis. Yes, basically, uh, and, and for those who don't know, the lot of law enforcement agencies have certain task force, and my name was on a violent offender task force, and they basically targeted me and guys like me who were moving around the city of St. Louis. What does that mean for people who don't have those experiences? Uh, say, for instance, I was convicted of a violent felony, and maybe if my name came up somewhere or how, even without no evidence in anything, they would begin to follow me and just target me and monitor my movements, and eventually they caught me with a gun. Mm. Okay, how did they catch you with the gun? Uh, I won't go into the legal uh, ramifications about it, but I had a, a gun in my place of residence. I wasn't there, but the lease was in my name and everything. So, mm. Mm. so yeah, well. I got 180 months for that, 15 years. Wow. <laughs> it's just like cooperate with the investigation or we're going to give you 15 years for the gun. So, well, you know. Thinking back, because you said that you were um, sort of caught up in the criminal justice system since you were 14. You went to you did your first long stretch at the age of 17 or 18. What else could have been done for you to prevent that trajectory for your life? 
how could the state, how could your community, what kind of interventions would have put you on a different path, in your opinion? Basically, systemically, I, I ended up where I was supposed to be. Uh, I was a young black male involved in crime. And you know that's where the police concentrate their efforts. Mm. And it wasn't like I was a smart criminal or anything like that. I was a kid, you know, stealing and stuff like that. So I was an easy target, you know. And I made the quotas, and then eventually the pipeline became a reality. I went from juvenile facilities to the adult state prisons to federal prisons. That's just it unfolded like that. So you do you think there was a different way that resources could have been allocated, or let's just speak more generally and more just look at this as a like you said a systemic problem, right? There are communities where you have a large concentration of African Americans, many who may be low income. Um, instead of investing in law enforcement, how else could resources be deployed to stop people from actually going into the criminal justice system? Well, basically, it, it, you have to reinvest in the community. Like, the subculture exists because the system failed. Uh, there's no resources. They feel disenfranchised. They don't have a voice. And, and they pick up a deviant or a delinquent lifestyle, and that becomes their norm and their reality. Uh, we have to reinvest into our community. I'm a proponent of it takes a village. You know, we lost our village. You know, with mass incarceration, they locked up the fathers, the mothers, the uncles, and the children raised themselves. You know, like mass incarceration, I consider the crack era and all that, it it's just one big thing, and now we're seeing the, the products of it. Mm. Uh, I just have a platform to tell my story. There's so many people, man, that have been affected by mass incarceration uh, with children with incarcerated parents. I, my parents were incarcerated. Mm. Uh, I think I did a study on that, like, I think 68% of children with incarcerated parents end up incarcerated themselves. Mm. And what even more frighteningly, foster children become like 74% mm. of the prison population. And that's frightening, man. And we know who is foster care, people who look like you and me. Right. And, and, and that, that was a product of the crack era. You know, all them children in, in, in foster care, their moms and dads on drugs or whatever. And the system worked the way it was supposed to be. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm really glad that you pointed out those statistics, and that speaks also to your new role in life. You um, have a bachelor's now. You just got a master's. Talk a little bit about your education and how your experiences in the criminal justice system informed the type of things that you pursued when you were in college and um, at the university. Uh, really? Education it was was like really my way out, and I understand education isn't for everybody, but it opened up so many doors, and I became to view life so differently. I first stopped thinking like a criminal. I started thinking 
realistically like a member of society. I didn't no longer but see myself as an outcast. Uh, being a thug wasn't cool. So talk about that, because I remember when we spoke earlier, you were saying you were in Chicago, you were walking down the street, and you looked up and you saw this billboard for <laughs> university. Oh, oh. Talk about that. Like, tell us that story. Okay. Uh, when I was released from prison, like I said, I relocated to Chicago. I didn't know anyone. I knew my aunt and her cousin. And I was walking around, passing out resumes, looking for a busboy, a dishwasher job. And I was on Michigan Avenue. That's where all the big colleges were. And it says that Roosevelt University, ex-offenders. And I went in and told them when I came out, I had my FAFSA done. I was enrolled. I had picked the schedule and everything, man, really. Man, wow. shout out to Roosevelt. So that's that's a university specifically for No, it was, a, it was a program. I think it's been discontinued but they had a program specifically recruiting ex-offenders mm. and it worked mm. you know because people choose alternatives when they know all the alternatives i never thought someone was going to loan me money then give me another stipend to make it to the end of the year employ me give me student housing and i gotta pay them back later that was the best thing in the world man <laughs> like literally man a lot of people have, like, egos. I'm 50 years old. I was living in student housing. Mm. But I lived on the 15th floor with a view of the Chicago Tower. Mm. And I was just, like, felt blessed. Mm. You know, I owe about 75000 <laughs> You know what I'm saying? But it is what it is. You but know, at least it was an opportunity. It huh? was an opportunity. Uh, and I would encourage any young person who... To pursue education, looking to live in student housing or whatever. I'm telling you, they cannot discriminate. If you enroll in school and tell them people you have nowhere to live, they're going to loan you some money and give you a place to live. They're going to give you a job. So, you know, so it was easier for you to get a job? Did, did through, you? The, through the school. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying I worked only 20, 25 hours a week. Mm -hmm. But as a grad student, they paid me like $18, $19 an hour. You know, undergrads make maybe 10, but like, you know, I would see the stipend to help me, you know, sustain myself. This was at Roosevelt? No, University? that was at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Okay, so you, so our listeners, they don't know. Like, okay, yeah, okay. Back up a little bit. Okay. Uh, I received my bachelor's in professional studies from Roosevelt University. My major is criminal justice. My mind is in social science. Uh, also, when I was at Roosevelt, I was like the vice president of the Criminal Justice Society. Wow. Uh, the 2013 Social Justice Award winner. Mm. Uh, I had a lot of encouragement at Roosevelt. And uh, there was a professor, her name is uh, Dr. McCoy. And she told me, if you want to be a PhD, follow my lead. So mm. I just did everything she asked me to do. Uh, Got enrolled in UIC, and I really I didn't know how prestigious of a, a social science school that University of Illinois Chicago was until I met so many people that weren't accepted. Like, how did wow. you get in UIC? <laughs> I don't know. I just applied. Look, I said, "You got in UIC." So, what was that like? I mean, because so all of us in this room. I'm also joined by Matt Ashton, our executive producer. Say what's up, Matt. What's up? What's up? <laughs> Matt may interject here as well, but all of us um, have that academic background, right? But unlike you, Matt and I didn't spend, you know, uh, a significant time incarcerated. 
and specifically the fact that you were enrolled in a criminal justice program, your experience, you had experiences on the opposite side of, of criminal justice. So what was that like being it with... It was really, like, interesting. And, like, my professors really encouraged me to uh, participate and explain my side. You wouldn't believe, like, in the criminal justice field, there are a lot of police officers and prosecutors and lawyers. And, like, honestly, I have two friends now that are police officers that I would never thought I would consider a police my friend. So right. white guys yeah. I would never have. Yeah. Ten years ago, you say I got some white guys that's the police and they my friends. Yeah, but I learned a lot both sides because when, you, when, you when they first met me, they know nothing about my background. So they got to know me, and and through the course of the class, my story comes out, and they was like, "They see past." Yeah, you're not the guy, right? You know what I'm saying? That 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 you know, you wear a hoodie and a ball cap, but you're not one of them guys. Yes, I am, man. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I am. They are too. They're they're just like you know, many many respects. And and it was just really because. I always had another side to tell because, you know, most people only see our communities on the news or as they drive by on the bus or something or in a cab. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't know that guy with his pants hanging down is a good dude. He's a parent. He has a job. But he just adopted the dress of his community. Right. Now, I don't, I'm not supporting the sagging, but I'm just saying you don't know these guys, and it's yeah. just a stereotype. You know, it's just a stereotype. So well, me, how do you find um, – I'm sorry, Matt. Uh, let me quick, quickly ask because you talked about the professor who had the Ph.D. and said if you wanted the Ph.D. and follow her lead. I feel like that talks about networking a lot, yeah. right? Like in the people that you know who are police officers. Can you yeah. talk about that and, you know, maybe give some key pointers in, in your story that can maybe apply to other people who have kind of walked you that just, similar path? like one thing, man – I realized that everyone's not my enemy, not personally my enemy. Right. You know, a lot of systemic and racist things exist, but I don't even know you. You can't be my enemy. Right. So you have to give the people benefit of the doubt. Right. And people, most things are learned behavior. Mm-hmm. And they think a certain way because of the things they were taught. And once you show that, like, I am articulate. I do have values. I'm a father. Right. You know what I'm saying? I'm a provider. You right. know? And it's just like society is so segregated and the stereotypes are so profound and just like off life altering. Right. You know, like uh, I have a friend, you know, both of us are thinking about our PhDs, but you know, jeans and ball caps, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. Both of us thinking about we PhD candidates. Why y'all harassing us? Right. So you, are you speaking to police harassment? Yeah, police harassment. You know, it's my sin is my skin, man. Mm. And I'm not saying that all white people are bad, but I might look like the stereotypical criminal with a hoodie and a ball cap. You know, we just walking and just talking, and 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 and, and we're in the wrong neighborhood. You guys mm-hmm. don't belong here. Mm-hmm. You know. And then, you know, if they see your school ID and they explain to you who you are, it's okay. But no, it's not okay, not man. Okay. <laughs> I was minding my business, you know? You know, so I have to take my hat off or turn it around straight when I become here. 
I just did that on the highway. Just when I'm just saying, getting on the highway, I took my hat off and turned it around straight. And that's interesting because I think as black males, we've all had that. At least yeah. I know I have. Yeah, I mean, being in the in the Bay Area and like the San Francisco, Stanford yeah. area, you know, you walking around at night. Uh, we got pulled up on once or twice, you know. And I'm a student at Stanford University, one of the quote unquote most prestigious universities in the country. And here I am in this area and still getting. Low key harassed. Yeah. I won't big it up like I was yeah. Yeah. really treated on like you know in a really bad way. But still, it's like they want to know man. who you are, right? You know, and you know, just racial profile. Who are you? What right. are you doing here? Right. You know, what it, are your credentials like? What the uh, in slavery days need papers? Give me the, the whole story. Papers. Right. Yeah. yeah, you know. Let's uh, talk a little bit because what's interesting about your story is that you've been convicted of violent offenses. Yeah, violent. And this is father. Um, uh, Offenses involving firearms. Yeah. So, really, in the public discourse, you're like the monster of the monster, right? Yeah. But the fact that you are a PhD candidate, a graduate from the University of Illinois, Chicago, shows that everyone who has been convicted of a violent offense is not somebody that should just be locked away. Yeah, Can you not. speak to that? How do people treat you even in your criminal justice circles when they found out when they find out that you have been convicted of a violent offense? Uh when they first meet me or heard about me, most of my colleagues think like he was probably just like a non-violent middleman type. <sighs> and then when they hear my story or or, or meet people who really know me, it's just like, oh my God, but you're not the person on the paper. Like my file was horrible, I'll admit. If I read myself on a file, my file is horrible, but people can change. Uh, and I'd be judged by things that happened 30 years ago. Mm. You know, 30 years ago, I was 17, 18. You know, but people can change, and this is a process. Uh, it's a mindset. We Like, I think we were talking about the village community. We got to get back to that village mentality. It takes a village to raise a child, mm -hmm. you know. And I just didn't want to be a part of the problem anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't. I wanted to be a part of the solution because I know it's a lot of young guys, like, look up to me and glamorize my lifestyle and unfortunately, a lot of them are deceased now. I have life sentences or whatever trying to mimic my behavior. And I really feel bad about that, man, because you never know who's watching. You, you never know who's watching. And, like, yeah, kids watching. The guys that's riding the rims and doing this and doing that and you hustling on the block don't think they're not watching, right. you know, and I can't tell the man how to eat. I don't know your financial situation. I wish I could tell you not to hustle and I had a job for you. Right. But I'm saying keep it out the eyes of the public. Don't let don't do it on your front steps, man. Right. You know, don't let them kids glamorize say cuz there's a lot of kids say I want to be like you. You know, so you got to show them something respectable. We got to kill those norms, man. Right. Those, those those destructive norms. Let me ask you this. Um so I come from Forestville, Maryland, which is right outside of D.C., right outside of Southeast, and it's not the best area, but there are still figureheads in the community in these different stores who kind of help, 
young people find their way. For example, uh, the barbershop. I still go to my old barbershop because I know the old men in there allow the dudes who are, you know, hustling and doing whatever they're doing, come in. They're like, hey, don't bring any of this in here, but I'm going to let you come in here, get a fresh cut, talk, you know, learn something and go out about your day. For you, what was that like growing up? What were those figureheads in the community who imparted some game on you that might not have switched on until later on down the road? Uh, I really come from a good family, man, mm-hmm. like a real good family, even though like my parents, my mom was incarcerated for a long time. I really come from a good family. I was instilled a lot of values, uh, but it was just the lure of the streets and that got you. that, that, that got me. And I was, it was glamorized. And that's why I keep saying that. And, and it just had me so enamored that I wanted to be like him and I wanted to do this. Mm-hmm. And and I really ignored all the positive role models on the influences until years and years right. later. Uh, all the ethics and the morals and just the home training I had, it it, it, it comes into play. You right. know, a smile and a nod, a please and a thank you, a good morning. Just being a good person, man. You know, just trying to practice benevolence. And I, I, I practice my day with black people every day, especially black men. I'm not your enemy, brother. Right. All those mean bugs. I love you. I'm not your enemy. Right. You know, I'm not the enemy. I'm with you. Mm-hmm. If it go down right now, I'm with you. And I don't know you. You know, but, like, we hate each other. And that's just sad. We hate each other. And and, and the children watch us hate each other. Mm-hmm. And that's what's crazy. And they just try to mimic our behavior. Because they think it's the norm. It, It's that macho thing, man. Man, we got to end that. It, it got to change. It got to, the values of our communities definitely have to change. You know, it definitely have to change, man. You your brother's keeper. Right. You know, man, yo, you, the sister not no B. She the sister, man. Right. You know what I'm saying? She the mother of somebody. She somebody's sister, man. You know. But, you know, I want to push back on a values conversation a little bit. Okay. Just because I think, like, when you talk about values in black communities, you can't you can't separate that from the white the white supremacist power structures and the systems. You know, if African Americans, if arguably African Americans, especially the males, hate each other, where would where would that hate come from? It's the you hate know? that hate created. You know where it comes from, but once you become aware of that. Once you become aware that we taught to hate each other, we right. taught to lie and to steal and be deceptive, you know, that's... We Crabs in a barrel. Yeah, we can't do that. Right. I'm just saying, this 2016, you can't blame nobody but yourself now, man. Well, uh, I think that... Yeah. This, this is my thing. Um, when you look at the numbers, when you look at Washington, D.C., for instance... Um, you have War 7 and 8 that have the highest rates of African-Americans, the highest rates of unemployment, the highest rates of poverty, and just about any other negative statistic that you could think of. So I think that when we talk about the struggle and we talk about justice and freedom and equality, we also have to demand equal access to opportunities and resources because that lack of access to opportunities and resources drives the criminal justice system. Yep. And it's not just for African Americans. When you look at the Native American population, mm-hmm. which are 
statistically more incarcerated than we are, yes. they also have very high rates of HIV, high rates of poverty, high rates of alcoholism, Listen, all yeah. of these very negative statistics mm-hmm. because they live in environments where resources are scarce. You know, and that was very much a result of public policy, just like it was public policy that put Native Americans on reservations and took away their lands and killed them, committed genocide against them. It was also policy that put African-Americans in neighborhoods uh, with low uh, housing quality uh, without you know, the best educational opportunities and without the best employment opportunities. And much of what we see in our communities are a byproduct of that. The system's working exactly how it's designed. It's a capitalist society. They need a working class. They need a poor person. They need a laborer. Mm -hmm. Uh, like, but education makes man unfit to be a slave or to be, you know, you want to want your own, you want to do for your own, Mm -hmm. but if you can keep them there, if you can keep their mind there, if you can keep listening to the little way, right. <laughs> it's some some that just turns down instead of bills. You can create it. Right. it, it it's it, more profit. It, it's maximizing profit, and it's not just in a financial sense, but you can get away with a lot more if you know the person who you're profiting from. They have yeah. no they have no voice. Mm-hmm. You know they have. You know this is a white male dominated society, and who call the shots. Yeah. And that's just the way it is. It's them and it's us. Mm-hmm. And we don't fit into that that sphere that they have. So they're going to create public policies and stereotype a media blitz against us. Uh, and a whole lot of just negative stereotypes that ingrained in society. Mm-hmm. Media plays a major part in this. You know, the media, the way they do describe black men or even D.C. and Southeast and 7th and 8th Ward. They paint a certain picture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and taxpayers are like, why should we help them? But why shouldn't we? Mm-hmm. This is America. Why shouldn't we? Well, you know, what, what we're big about, because we do the podcast, we have our forums, we do a lot of research, and we also collaborate with a lot of organizations to really help create solutions. Um, And what I find interesting about your story is that I think you're on that path to create those solutions. So tell our audience a little bit, and we can wrap up with this, but tell our audience a little bit about what are next steps for you. You just moved to D.C. Um, I'm pretty... You know, confident that you're going to put that criminal justice education to good use. Where do you see yourself in the next year or so? Gainfully employed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But really, I'm really into my community, man. I'm really trying to invest in the community. I really love young people, man. I really want them to see another side of life and encourage them about education, man. Because education is the only thing going to separate us, man. And and I want to say to the young people, you can have education and not lose your swag. You can still be the coolest dude you want to be. Right. You know, but education is important. And everybody who who knows someone young, tell them how important it is to get an education, to get a marketable skill. You know, that's right. that's the message I got. And yeah. shout out to my wife. I love you, baby. Thank you. I'm glad you said that because I was going to ask you because I love your T-shirt. And it says, oh. a nation can rise no higher than its women uh, by Minister Louis Farrakhan. Yeah. And I know you talk uh, so beautifully about your wife. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about 
you know, that a little bit and talk about your T-shirt. Uh, a nation can rise no higher than its women. Black women are like the muse of the world. They done been disrespected, man, and, and, and had to bear the burden when the brothers were in the fields or locked up and everything. And we just disrespect them. You know, we just disrespect black women. That's somebody's mother. That's someone's mm. sister, man. And, like, they are our first teachers. You know, and, and if you import all that negative energy to the black woman, what you expect our community to be? And you got to realize, man, that the women are victims, too, especially the young women around age, man. They are victims of the crack era. They are victims of mass incarceration. And they just get treated so poorly and unappreciated. I appreciate my wife. You know what I'm saying? And who is your wife? Lashana yeah. Thompson Hill. All right. <laughs> so we're we going to have Lashana on the next episode. And uh, Sean, thank you so much for coming out and speaking to us. This has been a really good recording. I can't wait to hear it. I know our audience can't wait to hear it. Thank you so much. Any last words, any shout outs, anything you want, you think people should know about before we close? No, man, I just appreciate you. I appreciate for you guys inviting me, man. And, and we got to get back to the village, man. Take a village to raise a child, man. We just got to put the younger to yet born, man. So God bless you guys. I appreciate you. God bless appreciate you, you man. Thank you so much. All right.